Hey now, everyone. So the Silver King made a rookie mistake taping today's edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. For some reason, for the first time since starting this show, I forgot to check the audio input on my computer while I was recording the show. So rather than tape from my microphone with my beautiful setup, I unfortunately used the microphone on the computer. Unfortunately, I taped the entire 45-minute show before knowing this, and it does not make sense to, when you're doing an extemporaneous type of podcast, just go ahead and retape the entire thing. So I'm going to go ahead and do the best I can to improve the audio quality. I want to send my sincere apologies for a slightly under quality edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, but please bear with me for this individual episode. And I promise that audio hardware button on my recording software will be checked every single time I do this going forward. So with that, enjoy this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With your Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back to talk all things AEW, Beach Break, and NXT as we got one of the best Wednesday nights of professional wrestling that we've had in quite some time. We talked about last week, AEW and NXT stepping their game up. They took it to another level this Wednesday, and I cannot wait to break it all down for you on today's show. It has been a whirlwind couple of weeks in the world of professional wrestling, especially on this podcast, uh, where the Silver King has put together a cavalcade of fantastic episodes for you, not only giving you full coverage of the Royal Rumble. We spoke one-on-one with the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels himself. Do not forget to listen to that episode. And of course, we talked about all the fallout from the Royal Rumble on this past week's WWE episode. So do not forget to check all of those. A couple other reminders. You guys know the drill. Stop being marks for yourselves and... Go back to being Marks for the Silver King and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop us a five-star rating and review. Let people know how much you love the show. Let people know why you love the show. And then go into your real life and tell people you know about the show. That's how it goes. That's how the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast grows and 2021 we hope to be a banner year it is my goal this year to double our audience can we do it i don't know it will be up to you to help us also do not forget to follow us on twitter follow the show on twitter at getting overcast we will tweet every single episode as soon as it is live so you never have to be late to listening we also tweet live during the shows on monday wednesday friday nights and of course weekends whenever there are pay-per-views, and I think we're a pretty good follow. We also tweet about wrestling news and share funny pictures and GIFs and videos and all those good things that you want from a wrestling Twitter account. So if you don't have Twitter, go sign up. Follow us at Getting Overcast. You can also follow the Silver King personally at Silverstein Adam. That's a little bit less wrestling, more sports, uh, movies, beer recommendations, food, things like that. But I think I'm a good follow as well. So you can follow the Silver King 
at Silverstein Adam. But we're not really here to talk about Twitter or about podcast reviews. We're here to talk the world of professional wrestling, especially on Wednesday night. And like I said, AEW and NXT, they both gave us fantastic shows that were quite different. Both had great wrestling, but NXT was building up to something, which is NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. I have to remember in my brain how to say that because it's not a... It takes two different potential names they had for this show and jammed them into one. They had St. Valentine's Day Massacre as an option, considering this is happening on Valentine's Day. And then they had Vengeance as an option. And they kind of just rammed them together primarily, I think, because they didn't want to use the word massacre for a WWE pay-per-view or NXT takeover in the year of our Lord 2021. Uh, So they are going with Vengeance Day. But NXT was building to that. AEW was delivering on Beach Break, uh, which it was a TV special, while they are still simultaneously building for Revolution, which I believe is in March. So two different episodes, but both nevertheless very successful. Now, listeners of this podcast, longtime listeners know uh, we talk about both shows. We talk about them individually. So if you are only a fan of one or if you only watch one, or if you only want to hear the Silver King talk about one of them, head on over to our episode description. We will have timestamps for the start of our AEW talk and the start of our NXT talk. We do this every week and we do this for every single episode. So that's just a reminder for everyone, but I sincerely hope you listen to everything because even if you prefer one to the other, you should have an idea of what's happening on the other show. Maybe it will get you to go watch. And the goal, I think for all of us wrestling fans, especially here in North America, though, I know somehow, I don't know how it happened, the Silver King's talking to a global audience. I look at our uh, map of people who listen to the show, and I've seen Australia, I've seen New Zealand, Tel Aviv, Pretoria, a number of different cities, including Stockton-on-Tees, and Belfast, Northern Ireland, everywhere in the United Kingdom, you guys are listening, Hawaii, Canada, a couple listeners in Japan. Uh, This is just incredible. So uh, yeah, somehow I'm talking to people across the globe. I love it. I'm glad you guys love it. Thank you for listening. Uh, But yeah, let's start talking professional wrestling. We will start this week with AEW Beach Break because that really was the signature show. Whenever there is a signature show, we make sure that gets the first block on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So we need to start undoubtedly with the main event where we had Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers defeat John Moxley Pac and Ray Phoenix. Mox had these black pants with an orange logo on them that were super weird, at least for me. Like, except it seemed so corporate uh, where he normally just wears fatigues or something like that. So I thought that was a little strange. But Phoenix was the star of this match. No surprise, he was the star of the entire night. Both brands, MVP of Wednesday Night Wrestling is Ray Phoenix. He is absolutely incredible. He did a diving reverse headbutt, a really silky springboard, I don't know, combination of 18 different moves, a double moonsault outside with Pac, and then a moonsault that turned into a rolling cutter on Omega for a 2.5 in the ring. I spent the entire match like verbally amazed every time Phoenix did everything, like audibly saying things to no one except my dog Moose that I couldn't believe the type of shit that Ray Phoenix was doing on my television. Uh, You know, once we came back from commercial, there were about 10 minutes left in the show. Tagging became completely non-existent. Referee Aubrey Edwards just didn't care. Uh, Omega hit a sick snapdragon on Phoenix. 
as he was straddling the top rope, then a gut wrench Liger bomb on Pac, plus a V trigger. Omega hit Moxley with the paradigm shift, but Pac broke it up with a 450. At this point, it was already the match of the night for either show, and it just got better from there. Mox illegally tagged Phoenix through the bottom rope, which I've never seen happen before, legally in a match, but again, Aubrey didn't call it. Phoenix immediately ate a magic killer and took yet another loss. So as excited as I am to watch Ray Phoenix wrestle, as much as I love Ray Phoenix, man, he loses everything, especially in AEW. They got to get this guy some W's. I don't care if it's tag team division. I don't care if he goes after the TNT title. Ray Phoenix needs to be winning matches, needs to be featured on your program. I get why they lost here. It was the right booking for that team to lose. You can't pop to suffer a loss. It has to be Phoenix. Absolutely has to be. I don't know. Guy was the man of the match, man of the night across both shows. It just hurts to not see him win. I like him so much. This was a extremely good match. Like I said, match of the night. Absolutely loved it. Lance Archer came down in the post-match to save the faces from an attack. Mox crawled over to Omega when he was suddenly attacked from behind by Kenta, who hit him with the go to sleep. This comes after Mox attacked Kenta with Death Rider over on an NJPW show in America last week. Omega smiled, but commentary didn't really sell it that strongly, meaning the attack. After the show, they officially set Kenta and Kenny Omega against Moxley and Lance Archer next week. I mean, this is the feel spot siren going off, folks. Uh, NJPW plus AEW. This is what we wanted from the beginning. Now, look, I'm not going to get ahead of myself, okay? The ending of this, it wasn't necessarily great. It was kind of tampered down when, if that was certainly in front of a huge audience, they would have been going crazy. But the fact that an NJPW contracted star made an appearance in AEW could obviously have huge ramifications for the future. Now, we don't know if this is just a straight trade agreement, because what's happening right now is AEW is letting Mox wrestle for NJPW in the United States, we presume to drop the United States Championship, the IWGP US Championship. His contract with AEW apparently states he can wrestle for NJPW just outside of America. So it seems like they're making a concession, and one would assume that Kenta is appearing on AEW television because, number one, he's in the United States already, so it makes sense that he's already here. But as a short-term agreement to kind of promote NJPW and the use of Mox, but also get people to tune into AEW Dynamite on future weeks. So we just don't know right now whether this is a short-term agreement or perhaps the start of something bigger. I did see a report out there that this is the beginning of a working agreement between the two. That may be the case, but we don't know what that agreement's going to be or how extensive it's going to be. So I see people losing their minds that, oh my God, now I'm going to see Abushi versus Omega at Madison Square Garden in six months, once we're all able to leave our houses and, and you know, we all get vaccines. If that happens, incredible. I, I, hope, I hope to all heavens that it happens. I'm just not going to take these leaps until I have a little bit more concrete proof that the working relationship is beyond a single storyline. Just like with the Impact deal, I thought, oh, maybe this is just with Don Callis and Omega is going to appear on Impact a couple times just to make, do a make good for that. 
No, they're doing more. Private Party is over on Impact, and they're the number one contenders for the Impact Tag Team titles. The Good Brothers have spent multiple weeks on AEW Dynamite. So clearly, the Impact thing is a little bit more than I expected. Once this storyline runs with Impact, are they going to continue? I don't know. Uh, We can speculate all we want, but we just don't have the answers to these things. So I'm not going to go crazy because I don't want to then get disappointed when things don't happen. But either way, the way you look at this, it opens a door, which had been closed. And that's certainly exciting. You just can't imagine AEW using the top of NJPW's roster, considering how huge its own roster already is, and the fact that they're also working now with Impact. But still, this is very exciting. And the idea of NJPW plus AEW in any form is something that we thought was going to happen maybe two years ago. And the fact that it's happening now, given these circumstances, it's certainly exciting. So even though we're talking AEW beach break here, a quick aside, because right as we began taping this episode of the podcast, NJPW announced that they are returning to United States television on February 11th. Every Thursday, beginning at 5 p.m. Eastern for one hour, there will be an NJPW show, presumably in English, on the Roku channel. That's in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. So that's big news. It's going to be matches that have not been seen on United States television, which basically means they'll pick the best of the best from NJPW World, whatever events are held, and they'll put together a one-hour program, again, presumably with Kevin Kelly on commentary, and they will air that in the United States. So that's awesome. It's slightly ironic that people have been begging NJPW to create a Roku app for NJPW World, and we still don't have that. But their US TV show is going to be on the Roku channel, which is just funny. Uh, I have Roku. You guys know, long-term listeners, that is my streaming service of choice. Not streaming service, streaming um, device of choice. I have three of them. I think they're great. Roku does not sponsor this podcast. But the fact that NJPW is going to be accessible on a device I use and own, that's a big win for the Silver King. So I hope you all have Roku or have a way to access this channel. I did get a tweet from a listener. Sean Fort or Forte. I don't know which one you're going by, man. At S Forte 10. He said, for those of us who have never watched but are intrigued based on your commentary during different podcasts, any way you can summarize what makes NJPW worth watching? Yeah, uh, you know, great wrestling. It is some of the best in-ring professional wrestling you will ever see. The storylines generally are simple and easy to pick up. And NJPW does a great job making you a fan or someone who despises their individual characters. They do a great job making faces and heels and having you buy into the storyline that they want to tell. But more than anything, it's some of the greatest wrestlers putting on some of the greatest wrestling matches in the world. The Kenny Omega, Kazuchika Okada series, those four matches that those guys put on is the greatest wrestling series of all time. So I would seriously suggest anyone who's interested in New Japan, generally, I would assume if you're interested in New Japan, you know who Kenny Omega is, and you probably watch AEW, or at least NXT. So if that's the case, I would go seek out those four matches. You can find them, I promise. Google 
those names and like one, two, three, and four, and you'll be able to watch them, you know, not the most legal way. Watch those four matches in order. If you don't like what you just saw, then do not watch NJPW. If you love what you saw, then go watch NJPW. It's very simple. And there's never been an easier entree into a wrestling product than saying, watch Okada Omega all four times they fought. And if you loved it, then go watch it and I can give you more recommendations from there. But okay, as I said, we're here to talk AEW Beach Break, not New Japan, but something did happen that was major. So I did want to make sure we talked about it in an appropriate spot. Moving on with Beach Break, we had the Tag Team Battle Royal to open the show. This is the second thing I'm talking about for AEW because I thought it was the second best thing on the show. And that's a compliment because I loved the Tag Team Battle Royal. There was a funny spot early that the camera missed where Isaiah Cassidy tried to dive into a group, but they all ducked and let him just splash the canvas, which is, by the way, what should happen in reality. Whenever someone's like jumping off of a high structure and you see them coming at you, you wouldn't catch them. You would step away. So I just thought that was really funny. I also like that individuals could stay in the match if their partners were eliminated. So like if Santana got eliminated, that didn't mean Ortiz had to leave the ring. That was good. That said, Santana and Ortiz uh, depressingly were easily eliminated early in the match. The Good Brothers showed up at ringside to eliminate Private Party, the number one contenders for their tag team titles. But they also distracted Nick Jackson, who was then eliminated and mocked by MJF. The final six included three members of the Inner Circle, MJF, Chris Jericho, and Sammy Guevara. Then it was Jericho, Sammy, and Darius Martin from Top Flight as the final three. Jericho inadvertently eliminated Sammy and took Martin off the ring apron with a Judas effect, which was a great way to finish the match. This was easily AEW's best battle royal in the two years of its existence. Tons of fun, a great opening segment, and they got the winners right. So this was just big two thumbs up from the Silver King. Jericho and MJF later in the show brought Bubbly to the inner circle locker room, but Sammy wasn't having it and left. Jericho kind of ran after him to calm him down. And then MJF forced Wardlow to close the door so he could have a talk with the rest of the faction. So you get the match finish and the storyline with Sammy. Plus all of this continues a intriguing storyline. If I was booking it, if I had the opportunity and the options, I would do it where Jericho is keenly aware of everything MJF is doing the entire time and where MJF thinks he's splitting up the faction. He's actually the one ejected from it uh, in a way in which he gets beat down and taken out of action for a month or two months, which would allow this character to refresh a little bit, allowing the inner circle to stay connected and stay together. I don't like the idea of MJF actually splitting up the inner circle when they work really well together as a faction. But I do like the idea of inner circle being tested by this outside force in MJF. So I do hope that's the direction AEW goes, but we'll end up seeing what happens here. Also, in the tag team picture, FTR complained backstage about being barred from the Battle Royal. Then Dax Hardwood, like, quoted Bradley Cooper from War Dogs. Underrated movie, by the way. And it's on HBO frequently, so you can check it out. It's good. Uh, and then he revealed that they had Marco Stunt chained up. It seemed unnecessary, but... All right, now they're chaining up uh, a really small dude. So then we had the wedding of Kip and Penelope. That was the other major segment from the show. Sinister Minister was the officiant, which was a nice touch. Vicky Guerrero, I guess, was the wedding planner, was the role that she was in. Uh, Penelope Ford in the wedding dress. That's the most action I've had all year. Yeah. Uh, Kip Sabian's vows were about how smoking hot Penelope is, which, well, 
That's the most action I've had all year. Uh, Miro stopped at the objection part to ensure no one interfered, referencing his WWE wedding without calling it out explicitly. I thought that was hysterical and a really, really nice touch. You guys know when they first announced this wedding deal, like months ago, I was like, really, we have Miro in another wedding? It worked out that he was able to play off that. It was funny. Then it was over. And Kip and Penelope hardcore made out in the ring. Miro attacked an empty box thinking it was a person. Miro then said, what is love? And the crowd started singing the song, which again, was a fun moment. And I think that's what AEW crowds in particular are good for. They did a solid job there. I don't think that was planned. But if it was, that would be a little depressing. Chuck then shackled Miro to the bottom rope as Penelope went flying into the cake. Orange Cassidy popped out of it and hit him with the beach break on the appropriately titled show. So I guess this was a success because I thought it would be terrible and it was actually decent. The wedding and all of the tongue-in-cheek stuff was actually better than the wedding crashing, which is what that segment was all about. So I liked the first half way more than I liked the second half. But, you know, ultimately I will say that it was a success. It was not a failure as I thought it would be. One of the other big successes from the show was Britt Baker against Thunder Rosa. Holy shit. The women were on just 30 minutes into the show with a fully built storyline, only one commercial break, and they got a double wrestling segment. What the hell is going on? What parallel universe am I in in AEW where they're featuring the women? Good for them. Finally, they deserved it. Baker countered an around-the-back move by Rosa into a crucifix for a near fall. Then she hit an air raid crash for another. Rosa avoided a lockjaw. Baker hit her with a stomp and kept trying to get the lockjaw in while Rosa countered multiple times and hit another Death Valley driver for a 2.9. Rebel ripped off a turnbuckle pad while Rosa had a submission. So she broke the submission for no reason. I thought the logic there was faulty. Baker then threw Rosa headfirst into the exposed steel, knocking her out cold and putting in the lockjaw, but they immediately called the end of the match. Baker absolutely had to go over here and they gave Rosa an excuse for the loss. This was a tad sloppy at times in the same way that Sasha Banks Carmella at the Royal Rumble was sloppy, but still simultaneously a damn good match. So there was a lot of good wrestling in both of these matches, but just things weren't as fluid as you hope they would be given the caliber of performer. I know Britt Baker is still someone who's growing into the wrestling aspect. She's got the character way further down than she has the wrestling, but Thunder Rosa is so good, let's say in the... Uh, Sasha Banks role, if we're making the direct comparison, that I thought Baker would be a little bit more fluid. She wasn't. Still a damn good match. One of my favorite AEW women's matches. I'm not saying it's the best one. One of my favorite because it was built up well. These are two performers I actively care about, where some of the other ones I don't. And they ended up delivering in a big spot early in the show. AEW deserved credit for doing that. Hopefully they now realize, and they have this women's eliminator tournament coming up, which seems to have a lot of really talented women both in the United States and Japan in it. Hopefully AEW is realizing you can have success with women's wrestling if you give it time and space to operate. So on the opposite end of this, we had Darby Allen and Sting welcomed in by Tony Schiavone again. Before they even spoke, you know what happened. Team Taz interrupted to say they would be watching Darby's match against Joey Janela next week for the TNT title. Ricky Stark said Sting may no longer be the icon. Sting said if Team Taz 
We'll be there for Darby's match. He will be too. That was it. I'm seriously not leaving anything out. Again, the exact same shit every single week. This was fucking terrible. It just was. The crowd forced a reaction. You could feel like they were forcing themselves to cheer because they just knew it was bad, but Sting was there. I loved this episode of AEW Dynamite. I can't stand the Sting shit. And I don't care if you're the biggest AEW fan, you know I'm right. Stop lying to yourself. Everything they've done with Sting sucks. Zero point zero. Point zero. Later on, Joey Janela cut a promo ahead of the TNT title match, and it was great to see and hear him again. Solid stuff, even though, you know, he has no chance to win. I don't think he's won anything in AEW ever. But I do hope to see Joey Janela, Darby Allen tear the house down. I think it's going to be a great match. We had Lance Archer uh, defeat Eddie Kingston in the Lumberjack match. This thing was chaos to the point of ridiculousness, at least for me. Kingston hit Archer with a spinning back fist. Archer came back with a recoil, Uranagi, followed by a blackout for the win. This just wasn't for me. I could definitely see if people liked it. it. Not my taste. It didn't accomplish much of anything for Archer, who just lost to Kingston recently, only beat him because it was a Lumberjack match. And this is a guy who just keeps getting involved in everyone else's feuds, but doesn't have anything to do himself. Now he's involved with the Omega and Moxley deal. And it's just like, why can't we get Lance Archer pushed in his own storyline? He just keeps invading everyone else's. Uh, we also had Hangman Adam Page and Matt Hardy defeat Chaos Project. Hardy convinced Hangman to team up to get retribution for the ruining of Negative One's birthday last week or two weeks ago. Uh, last week, Hangman gave an awesome Jim Halpert look into the camera during the match. I thought that was funny. After Luther missed a ring apron sent on, he then hit the buckshot lariat, but Hardy tagged himself in for the fall. Page was unamused as Hardy celebrated. I do think that this has been a better usage of Matt Hardy than we've seen recently. Certainly over the last, I guess, 10 months or so since he debuted in AEW. But the stuff with Hangman, it just feels like it's getting drawn out too long. It's like they had this really nice tight story they were telling with the Elite. And almost like they're not ready to pull the trigger on what the payoff is for this storyline for Hangman. So they keep involving him with other people. You start to wonder, okay, he went through Dark Order. Now he's dealing with Matt and Private Party. Is he going to now deal with Inner Circle? Is he going to deal with Death Triangle? Like, is he just going to keep bouncing around? And at what point is that going to get monotonous? And I, I think it's starting to get there. Although Paige continues to do a great job. So it's kind of tough to criticize when I'm enjoying it. But I just, I'm, I'm tired of it almost. I want something a little bit fresher and newer with him. Why isn't this guy interested in the TNT title, for example? He should be someone going after Darby Allen, Even if he loses... His sights should be set on accomplishing something, not just being endlessly in this state where he can't find friends. It just, I wish they would do a little bit more with Hangman Page. So that's it from AEW Dynamite's Beach Break. I thought it was a big success. I Probably better than the New Year's Bash specials that they did in January, just because it was all pushed into a single episode. Obviously, the Brody Lee stuff wasn't hanging over it like it was that. But... It was just nice and tight. Uh, the main event was really damn good. The wrestling, the women's match was strong and the battle royal delivered beyond my expectations and the wedding wasn't a down part like I thought it would be. So it was a strong addition of AEW Dynamite. Like I said, they had been building up to this and they delivered on it. Now we're going to switch over to NXT 
where they are still building to NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. This was not the go-home show. Next week will be the go-home show. So on next week's episode of Getting Over, we will do an ultimate preview for NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. For now, we're obviously just going to talk about what happened on the TV show. The main event storyline is ongoing and it was made official. Pete Dunne called out Finn Balor, but barely got to speak before the NXT champion hit the ring. Balor called him out for needing backup just to get in the ring with him. So Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch dipped out. Balor officially took Dunn's challenge and said that it will go down at NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day. And then out of nowhere, even though he was announced for the show, Edge's music hit. Edge said WWE often puts the focus on the E, where NXT puts the focus on the second W, which is a damn good line and very accurate. He said NXT helped him find his passion for wrestling again because he sees the fire and desire in everyone's eyes. That was actually a shoot. Uh, Edge has said in interviews, I believe a year ago or so, that he had stopped watching WWE, but tuned into NXT, saw what was going on there and started watching NXT and then the WWE product again. So he meant that. And that's great because NXT is something that I think a lot of people help them find their passion for wrestling again when they stopped watching WWE. So it's very cool. Edge said he saw a lot of himself in Dunn, but knows Balor is operating at a different level right now. He said he'll be watching them at TakeOver because he's never had the NXT title before and their match could determine who he chooses to fight at WrestleMania. Edge was leaving NXT through the parking lot. Someone should have told him it's dangerous back there and not to leave. And also, why was he leaving the arena while his wife, which they made clear was his wife, was still on commentary. Why wouldn't he wait for her after the show? But okay, we'll, we'll put that aside. Uh, when Karrion Cross out of nowhere approached him and said Edge shouldn't be thinking about Balor or Dunn because Cross will be the one taking the title by the time WrestleMania comes around. Edge said that sounded like a threat and the last thing Cross should want is Edge going to NXT. This was a great use of Edge. You're popping a bit for the rating, getting him interacting with three of your top stars. And teasing something that, yeah, okay, it's not going to happen. But at least it gets fans like fantasy booking in their head. Could you imagine Edge versus Finn Balor at WrestleMania? It would be absolutely amazing if that went down. We know that's not going to happen. He's probably going to pick Roman Reigns. He might pick Drew McIntyre. Although I personally think that ship has sailed, as I mentioned on our WWE episode. But if he did choose Finn Balor and they did that two years in a row, with Charlotte going after Rhea Ripley and now Edge going after Finn Balor, that would really help establish NXT. And if WWE chose to put Edge on NXT, you want to talk about winning a ratings battle? That's going to help. I mean, we'll see what happens this week from Edge's appearance. It was going up against Beach Break. So I, I, it may boost NXT, but I don't know if it's going to have it beat AEW. But if it does, that may be telling WWE something that it should consider. But either way, I just don't see a situation where Edge fights Balor at WrestleMania, nor do I see a situation where Edge is on NXT. Should he get maybe an excursion there at some point in 2021? I think it would be cool if he spent a month in NXT. I just don't think it's going to be anything that you see regularly, and I certainly don't think it's going to be anything that happens at WrestleMania. Next, we'll move to the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. In the main event of the show, Tommaso Ciampa and Timothy Thatcher against Adam Cole and Roderick Strong. If it was not for the six-man tag team match that AEW put on, 
This would have been your match of the night. It would have been the best match on most Wednesday nights. Incredible stuff. Champa and Thatcher were consistently brutal. Cole got a great hot tag with a neckbreaker on Champa. Then the Undisputed Era guys both locked in submissions that were broken. Strong ate a German suplex from both men for a 2.9 near fall, then countered fairytale ending into an angle slam. Cole tagged in for a double super kick that saw Champa kick out a 2.9. Thatcher took out Cole and forced Strong to save him outside, giving Champa the opportunity to catch Strong with Willow's Bell as he was coming back in the ring for the victory. Again, what was one of the best NXT TV matches in quite some time. Great wrestling, great booking, the right team won. Everything about this completely ruled. Champa and Thatcher, I think, have to be the favorites going forward. After the match, as the show was going off the air, Grizzled Young Veterans came out for a stare down, and Champa lost his mind on them, started going after them. That is going to be an absolute barn burner next week. Thatcher and Champa against Grizzled Young Veterans. GYV, I thought, was the favorite in the tournament before Champa and Thatcher were announced. Because it feels to me like GYV is the team that needs to get pushed into an NXT title situation, tag team title situation. But maybe not. This is a big time match. Champa and Thatcher don't really have anyone where it would make sense for, to help them get disqualified. So I think Champa and Thatcher are going to win, but we'll find out next week on NXT. They've been giving us a lot of surprises in these tournaments, and so far, so good. We also got Legado del Fantasma against Lucha House Party. During a pre-taped segment, Santos Escobar said Wednesday night would be a banner night for his faction, or his group, actually. Uh, Grand Metalik hit an Escalera Hurricanrana, picking Raul Mendoza, straddling off the top rope. Lince Dorado then followed with a double moonsault to the outside. Absolutely ridiculous spot. Metalik was taken out, and Phantasma combined for their Russian leg sweep running kick finisher. Another really good finisher without a official name. For no good reason, as I've said numerous times, for the win. It's great to see Lucha House Party getting so many opportunities, but they never win anything. Like these guys, I know Metalik won that. It was either a gauntlet or a number one contendership on SmackDown for the Intercontinental title opportunity. I know he won that. He lost the title match. Uh, Lucha House Party, all the tag team matches they're on on Raw, they're kicking ass and, and it's awesome. And then they lose. Now, I wasn't expecting them to beat Hurt Business, and I wasn't expecting them to beat Legado del Fantasma. But at some point, you got to get these guys some wins. Just like I'm saying with Ray Phoenix over in AEW. At some point, Lucha House Party has to win something. They're too good not to. Okay, so let's get these guys a victory. Fantasma was the right call. Uh, MSK ran out after the match and cut a very charismatic promo on the group with their new slogan, it's MSK all night and all day. I like that. Not bad. Keep going with it. We also had a Cruiserweight Championship match, Santos Escobar defending against Kurt Stallion. Stallion cut a relatively bland pre-taped face promo about like Texas and he's a cowboy, something like that. Didn't even get my full attention and he didn't even get the full entrance into the ring on television. Minutes into the match, Scarlett appeared on the scaffolding behind commentary and Escobar kept getting distracted by her during the match, but he was still dominant throughout the entire thing. He had a brain buster, a tilt-a-roll backbreaker, and dropped Stallion onto the steel steps. After a short face run, Escobar rocked him with a kick, the Phantom Driver, and Legato for the expected win. So as everyone was celebrating, Karrion Cross suddenly showed up on the stage and absolutely ruined 
Raul Mendoza, and Jokin Wild. As Escobar stood in the middle of the ring, completely unfazed, Cross said they have a problem, but he'll give Escobar time to consider how badly he's going to be beaten. Escobar just stood there face to face with him, which was great. He's a, not only is he a heel, you want this guy to be confident. He should not be scared by Karrion Cross, just another big guy. You also got to see that even though he is currently working in the cruiserweight division, he stands up, stacks up pretty nicely with Karrion Cross. Cross is much bigger, no question. But Escobar, you know, face to face with the guy, proved this guy should not be in the cruiserweight division. He should not be on 205 Live. Santos Escobar should be on the mid-card in NXT, moving into the main event picture. He should be upper mid-carder, moving into the main event picture in NXT. Right now, I've said it a million times. Eventually, Cross suggested Escobar leave the ring, and he did eventually dip, but he maintained eye contact with Cross the entire way. I still don't necessarily understand why you would have a guy like Cross go against Escobar while he's the cruiserweight champion, but it's certainly interesting. Also, Cross came across maybe the best he has so far in NXT, like a regular badass dude, instead of this monster gimmick that they were trying to promote him. It's okay if he has that really cool entrance. But once that's over, he doesn't need to be some supernatural dude. He can just be a really strong, badass fighter type. And that's the way I felt he was portrayed on Wednesday. Now we'll move to the women's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic. Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez beat Caden Carter and Casey Catanzaro. Carter was the star of the match. She did a great tightrope Hurricane Rana and a springboard scissor kick. Catanzaro had a great hot tag run with Kai. She used Gonzalez back as a platform to jump onto the light scaffolding and then hit a sick splash on both of them. Kai hit an assisted Pele kick for a near fall. The Caseys totally rocked Gonzalez with some innovative offense and a basement Hurricane And Casey then hit her insane corkscrew senton is what we're going to call it right now. But Gonzalez kicked out of it. Then she caught Casey with ease for a choke slam and the win. I didn't love that she was the one to kick out of it. I would have preferred that Casey hit that on Dakota Kai and have Gonzalez break up the fall, put her finisher on Casey and have Dakota Kai get the win. It didn't make sense for Casey to do that. And not only for Gonzalez to kick out, but for it to be totally unaffected and immediately hit the finisher. It would have made a lot more sense if it was Dakota Kai doing it and Raquel Gonzalez helping her towards the win. Nevertheless, it was very good and impressive. The Caseys again did themselves proud here and the upset at least seemed possible during the match, which is what you want. But ultimately, the right call was made. You gotta put Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez over. Even though I wanted the Caseys to get a run, they can't beat them. It wouldn't make any sense. Raquel Gonzalez is basically the number one contender to the women's championship. You can't have her lose a match like that. Got a DM slide from Craft Brewing Biz. They are like the Rockers 2.0 with their energy, size, innovation, and charisma. I wouldn't go that far just yet, but is that possible? Yes. I do think they are the female equivalent of that if they can grow and improve a little bit more in the ring. If it was up to me, I would probably move them up to the main roster. I know they're still a little bit green, especially Casey Catanzaro. But what you want them to do is start working with talent that is going to up their game and you want them to work with them consistently. And considering the women's division on both shows is light on real tag teams. If you're able to put the women's tag team titles, let's say on Raw, and get 
three or four teams over there and you insert them, they're a team that can get beaten by a lot of other teams. But eventually, a year, 18 months from now, they can get past that and actually develop into the type of tag team that is capable of holding the women's tag team titles. I think if you gave them the titles now, it wouldn't make any sense. But they're definitely someone that can get working. They're a team that can get a lot of working on the main roster. And considering how loaded the women's roster is in NXT and the fact that they can create plenty of tag teams, new tag teams in NXT, one that feels like it's ready-made that needs to be in a tag team division should get brought up. And I hope they actually do that with them. We had another match on 205 Live, Shotzi Blackheart and Ember Moon defeating Marina Shafir and Zoe Stark. Stark is the former Lacey Ryan on the Independence. She was in her first WWE match. This wasn't the cleanest match. Stark got a good amount of work in. Moon caught Stark in a cool submission where she wrenched her backward by her head, something that was new to me at least for the win. Just like with Dakota Kai and Raquel Gonzalez, Shotzi Blackheart and Ember Moon absolutely had to win. So that was the right call. A couple more things happened on NXT. Johnny Gargano was absolutely hysterical again. Um, loving the new girl who was interviewing him because she was prompting him with positive questions. Then he learned that he was going to fight Kushida for the North American Championship at TakeOver and went nuts, saying he was going to get her fired, bringing her to general manager William Regal. Kushida was in Regal's office and they started brawling. Kushida kicked Gargano's arm and he started selling an injured left elbow, which I didn't see a lot of people pick up on on Twitter and on Reddit. I scan that sometimes during the shows just to see what people are talking about. Um, but I think that's going to be a major excuse that Gargano uses throughout the match. And it might even be one that costs him the title when you consider that Kushida utilizes the hoverboard lock. So I'd like Gargano to have a longer run, but Kushida getting the North American Championship would make a lot of sense. And with that match happening at this takeover, along with Finn Balor at Pete Dunne, we're already looking at a extremely strong card being built. We had Austin Theory fight Leon Ruff. Theory had new gear and a banging new theme. There were distractions at ringside and Ruff pulled in Eddie Guerrero, pretending Gargano hit him so that the referee would toss Gargano from ringside. Ruff hit a twisting springboard cutter back in the ring. Theory then caught Ruff flying outside, dropped him on the barricade, and hit the ATL for the clean heel win. Good. We like those things. Clean victories. It's great stuff. He then hit another ATL just for good measure. That was a necessary, like I said, clean singles winner for Theory and an entertaining TV match between a couple of young guys. So I love to see that. Dexter Loomis showed up after and he stopped Theory from using the timekeeper's bell on Ruff. He took a lock of Theory's hair. So now the Loomis factor makes sense while they're going with the Gargano Kushida storyline. I was wondering last week how Loomis factored into the entire thing. And, and I was saying I didn't want another triple threat match on TakeOver. So thank God that's not what they're doing. Either they're building him up to be Gargano's next challenger after he beats Kushida, or he's just doing a feud with Theory. And that's totally fine. So good use of Loomis, good use of Theory. We had Tony Storm fight Jesse Kamiya, who is now part of the Robert Stone brand. Storm cut down Io Shirai in a promo for being above everyone else in NXT except for her. Storm said she was on top of her game and no one would stop her from winning the title. This match, though, hardly happened because Storm did call out Mercedes Martinez in the promo, which led to Martinez interfering immediately. Shirai came down right after that happened and hysterically sat cross-legged 
on the top turnbuckle watching them as they brawl. Once they stopped brawling, she calmly went to the other turnbuckle, climbed to the top rope, and hit a double moonsault outside the ring. I thought it was very funny. Really strong stuff building up to the triple threat between Io Shirai, Tony Storm, and Mercedes Martinez at TakeOver Vengeance Day. This is going to be a really strong show. You're getting those three matches, plus the finals of the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, presumably the finals of the Dusty Rhodes Women's Tag Team Classic as well. That's your five-match card. Boom, you're there. That's a, that's a great takeover. No non-bangers on the card. That's happening on Valentine's Day next Sunday, February 14th. We also got to end the show, or to end this show, I should say, a Tian Shaw Primer, basically a video package giving us the entire backstory to this new Chinese group. And it was extremely cool. They did the ink drawings on canvas uh, to, you know, that was the style of the video to kind of tell the tale. It continues to be an intriguing booking. I was already excited about it, considering Shawn Michaels on this very podcast put over Zia Lee and Tian Shaw as something that he thought would be a big group in NXT in 2021. I'm even more sure that it's going to be cool. It makes me believe that he at least has his hands in this somehow. So this was a strong episode of NXT, as I said. The women did great. They had three different uh, segments featuring them. The men, they, they had two segments on the guy with El Fantasma, which you know I love. We got to see Edge in a really interesting segment with Finn Balor and Pete Dunne. And of course, the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic main event, um, the Tommaso Ciampa Thatcher match against Adam Cole and Roderick Strong. Like I said, that was a total absolute banger. So we got a great show from Beach Break that kind of solidified some storylines that are moving things forward to Revolution. And we got a great building block episode from NXT looking ahead to take over Vengeance Day, basically a week and change away next Sunday, February 14th on the WWE Network. So that's going to be incredibly exciting. We have this New Japan news that we need to look into, see what happens over the next week or so. That's going to debut on February 11th, next Thursday on the Roku channel. Got to see what's going to happen there. There's a lot of cool stuff happening in wrestling, folks. At the same time, all this is going down. WWE just so happens to be building to its biggest show of the year, WrestleMania 37. So as you can tell, the Silver King is enthused. I hope you all enjoyed listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We will be back next Tuesday to talk all things WWE. And of course, one week from now, next Thursday, we will be back with your NXT TakeOver Vengeance Day Ultimate Preview, as well as a breakdown of everything that happened on NXT and AEW next Wednesday. I appreciate all of you listening. Don't forget to head on over to Twitter. Follow us at Getting Overcast. Do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop a five-star rating and review for your favorite professional wrestling podcast. And with that, the Silver King is going to leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.